we're finishing off our studies in the book of Esther tonight. This will be a very short address, and it's really by way of uh, gathering together a few of the thoughts that we had last week in connection with chapter 9, and add a few from verse 10 in connection with the reforms that Esther carried out in Jerusalem. We saw last week that when Esther returned to Jerusalem, about uh, 60 years or so after the completion of the temple, he discovered that things had changed dramatically, otherwise spiritually, in Jerusalem. The enthusiasm and the spiritual revival, which had characterized the days of the completion of the temple, these were to a very large extent gone. And uh, you will note that, for example, if as some maintain the book of Malachi falls into that particular period, during that uh, 60 year period, you will discover from the book, from the prophecy of Malachi, how uh, desperately poor things had become spiritually. And that book throws into all relief the exercise of a very few spiritually exercised people in Jerusalem who at that time met together and uh, talked about the things of the Lord and spake of them one to another and that book of remembrance was written. It was at that period that these few people gathered together in Jerusalem to talk meaningfully about the things of the Lord. But generally, a spiritual malaise hung over the whole area. And uh, this, as we saw last week, because of the carelessness that had crept into their uh, spiritual lines. And uh, with that carelessness, a spirit of sloth and slothfulness and indolence had uh, taken over. And this was seen particularly in that contrary to God's express commandment, these Jews had married, many of them, the semi, some of the semi-pagan, from the semi-pagan races that surrounded Jerusalem, and the Samaritans. And uh, it was because of that that the chastisement of God had come upon them as a people. They had forgotten the great injunction delivered that they were to keep themselves as a people separate unto the Lord. And we notice that uh, this, uh, in applying it to ourselves today, that this is very often what happens, that uh, a person, a Christian, can very soon lose his enthusiasm and his zeal and his consecration, the spirit of dedication, which may have characterized him in the first flash of Christian belief and contentment with the Lord. It is very easy for us to lose that uh, enthusiasm, that dedication, 
that spirit of separation from the world. It is very easy for us to use that and to have our witness and our interest and our testimony compromised by the insidious influence of the world and of our enemy, the devil. And this is something that we have to be on our guard against all the time. And you remember how I quoted you last week the belief of many in the evangelical church today that it is that spirit that the evangelical church must get rid of and get back to its own puritanism to show that whatever else is true of the church this must always be true of it, that it is definitely distinct from and separate from the world and the spirit of the world and must show that its interests lie elsewhere that its environment with the world is as Jesus was in the world to save the world from itself and those of you who are those of you who are involved in trying to bring the influence of the grace of God to bear upon the world in which you live will have discovered I am sure that there are times when rather than win the world from its influence the danger always exists that the world will influence you and always remember the story that a young student used to tell about his own day about his own day as a student when he found himself uh, lodging in a boarding house in one of the university cities with a, a considerable number of young fellows who were not interested in the church at all and he thought that he would try to win them to the uh, influence of the gospel and he noticed that after supper that many of them sat down to um, play some card games and the thought struck him that having been interested in playing cards at one time himself the thought struck him that perhaps he might win their confidence by joining them in this exercise but note it was for the purpose of winning them for the gospel and for the church and he said that it didn't take him very long to discover that instead of winning them through that it was a pretty innocuous that pursuit of pastor instead of winning them through that he soon discovered that that pursuit was winning him to their way of thinking and instead of his exercising and winning influence over them he was in danger of being won over by them now every Christian is open to that temptation and we have to be extremely careful that living as we are in a world which is far far too strong and too deceitful for any one of us 
we have to be careful that we don't get sucked into it even at the very time as we are trying to win people away from the children. And then, for the church remaining and retaining its separateness from the world, as a matter of fact, the more distinct the difference between the church and the world, the better for the church. Now, when Esther discovered that the state of affairs was such, we saw in chapter 9 that he prayed. Now, you will notice that, if you read through that prayer again, that it is characterized by deep personal sorrow, by a deep sense of shame, because he saw the necessity for the, the church to separate itself from the the people with whom it had got involved contrary to the command of God. And there are times when, and indeed every penitential prayer, every prayer which has a spirit of penitence in it, is characterized by this deep sense of sorrow and shame. I'm sure that those of you who know anything at all about prayer would wish that there was more of this element in your own prayers, that they weren't quite as formal and that there were more of the spirit, and talking about private prayer, more of the spirit, penitence, and of the sense of shame and of unworthiness. It is also characterized by a considerable element of an awareness of the grace of God towards them as a people. God, Ezra acknowledges, has restored them to this, to that promised land. And they, they had seen the grace of God many years before that, the goodness of God and his grace in bringing them back. And here he is now among them confessing a relapse into sin. And this is something else that we have to regard it. We do know what it is to be aware of the newness of the goodness of God to us in his grace. But unfortunately, we also know what it is to relapse into the old ways. It isn't without reason that the Bible warns us in a very, very, in a very telling way to beware that we don't return to our sin. You know the picture pin? Even as a dog returns its own vomit. We've got to adopt that attitude to the sins from which God has, by his grace, delivered us. And this is our hope that the grace of God can deliver us from sin. But we have a responsibility to make sure that we don't give sin the chances whether it looks for every day in our lives. Then the prayer is also characterized by this in verse 14. <coughs> that a person can keep, as it were, falling back into the old ways in such a way that his heart becomes hardened. You know, continual practice, continual wrong practice 
Full power, full power. So you're converted. And you believe that God has forgiven your sins. You fear that you may sin. But unfortunately, the longer we go on, and this is how you see the deceitfulness of the heart, the longer you go on, the easier it is for you to fall into the very things that you are afraid of. Perhaps a few days or a year or two before that. And you look back, you'll find that when you become the, the, the more acquainted you become with these things, things that you ought not to do at all, if you keep on doing, you will soon discover that the thing that used to fear, that you to fill you with fear, doesn't fill you with fear anymore. You know the story of a cat crossing a wet road, and a cat is not yet his paws wet. And the cat puts its paws first to see, to test, as it were, see what things are like, and withdraws immediately, lifts its paws, shakes. But then you see it does it two or three times. And then, before you know who you are, the cat is crossing the road, it's got used to this, to the condition. That's the way it is with the heart and with sin. And it wasn't just Pharaoh. Remember that Pharaoh, for example, hardened his heart. Why? How was that possible? By continuing to do the things that he ought not to have done. Same with you and me. We have to be sure, to be aware of this, that we do not harden our hearts. And then the prayer also acknowledges there's a connection, a separate connection between sin and chastisement. This is what Ezra says. We know, Lord, I know, that the captivity came into our experience, into our existence, into our history because of sins. That's why we were taken into captivity. And now he says, here we are again, back from the captivity. And we don't seem to have learned our lesson. We don't seem to have learned our lesson. So he sees here the connection that exists between sin and chastity. No, we and I can't deny this. We cannot deny this. And I'm sure that it is it gives considerable exercise to the Christian heart to try at times and see the connection between present circumstances and sin, neglect, indifference, carelessness, and so on. You complain tonight, for example, of a hard heart, cold spirit, lack of seeing in the things of God. Is there a connection between these things? Perhaps your own private life? That probably is. That probably is. I know that there are chastisements such as the ones the Puritans used to refer to as when the clouds are in the heavens and you wonder why they're there and you look and you don't know why they're there. I know that there may be things like that. But I think that these are the exceptions rather than the rules in our own life. There is a connection between sin and chastisement. I heard, I spoke about this a, a few Sunday evenings ago, and I don't want to harp on the thing again. And then this prayer also acknowledges the goodness of God in dealings with and dealing with them. Of course, our captivity was because of those sins. But this is what Ezra says. 
the chastisement is far less than the descent. And who doesn't have to say that? If there were to mark iniquity, Lord, who would stand? None of us has ever received as much in the way of chastisement from the hand of God as we deserve. In the same way, as every one of us has received far more good from his hand than we ever deserve. We are to be melted in our hearts by a consideration of the mercies of God to us. And we are to see in that very light the awfulness and the enormity of our sins when in the face of all the privileges and the face of all the blessings that we had there is this tendency in our heart to forget and to deny our Lord. So Ezra lifts up his heart in prayer to God confesses the sin in the, that sin in the name of the people and acknowledges their ill deserved. And chapter 10 tells us how this prayerful, penitential attitude of Ezra and those who are around him seemed in the hand of God to work wonders amongst this people. A huge crowd gathered around the vicinity of the temple. As we read in verse 13, in this pouring rain, they gathered them, brought together in a very wonderful way, in a very extraordinary way, by the, by the, the working of God, convincing them through this one man, convincing them of the sin, so that they accepted the rightness of God's chastisement of them. And the person who sees that God is right in chastising him as well in the way to recovery under the hand of God. And it's wonderful what God can do through one person. Through the penitence of one person. Through the prayer life of one person. You know that it is recorded that some of the great revivals which have hit this land could be attributed to one or two poor people in the community. And look at the look at what we do in our own life and in my own life. If we gave more time to this, and we sought the Spirit of God in prayer and in penitence. Because remember this, as I see in a minute, with this I close. Remember, all this is going to cost each one of us. It's going to cost us. We need the spirit of prayer. We need the discipline of prayer. We need to put feeling into our prayer life. We need to trot out. We need it, we need, we need it to be deeper than the words that we tend to trot out. In private prayer before our Lord. We need to give more time to it. And which one of us cannot do that if we only applied ourselves to these things? If we only assess the situation with reference to ourselves and to us? Well, God what? 
through this month, assembled a huge gathering in the precincts of the temple. And these people with Ezra lifted up their voices to God. And when they, when, when the world, when this was, when, when, when they accepted the situation as it was brought before them by God, the only thing they could do was cast themselves upon the mercy of God. Did I say the only thing? No, not wrong. There was something else that they could do. But they cast themselves upon the mercy of God. And as the sin was brought before them, they separated themselves in the matter which had brought the chastisement, in the area in which they had gone wrong, in this intermarriage between themselves and the semi-pagan races and the Samaritans, from the area surrounding Jerusalem, and they recognized that what they had done was contrary to the mind and to the will of God. They went through with it separated from the men and the wives. Of course, as I said last week, some may say, but at what tremendous cost, what agony, what suffering, what pain that separation cost them exactly. And this was a tragedy of the situation. Who was to blame for that? God? No. But themselves. Who is to blame for the situation which you and I find ourselves because of the wrong course of action that we take? Somebody else? Oh no, we are. We are. Who is to blame for the wrong turning that we take, for the wrong association that we form, for the wrong practice that we engage in contrary to the will of God just because we want to do these things? Who is to blame? We are. Then when it comes to penitence, this is very often the case. More people than ourselves are involved in the agony and in the pain and in the cost of cutting ourselves off from these. That's why the Bible pictures repentance as being a thorough reformation. That is why. Jesus uses the word repentance and speaks of it as the, as, as, as the most thorough revolution that could take place in a person's life. Remember how he puts it? Remember the great chapter in which he uses this word? Therefore I say unto you, he says, that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. It is such a how does God in heaven above? And this is the way that God wants you and I to deal with all these hallowed practices and pursuits and interests and associations that we may have formed in our own lives privately or publicly. We are to go through with this separation. Whatever it is that you and I have slipped away from the standard set before us by the word of God. We've got to get back. Oh yes, it's really going to cost. The 
Don't blame anybody for it, but it's that. Perhaps you say I can't face it. You have to. In the interest of your own soul. And for the sake of the glory of God. You have to do it. And I need to spell out to you where these areas may be in your own life. Is this the magic of This is the work of Reformation that you have to do. And the book of Ezra closes and leaves us with that very message. It asks you and I, as someone has put it, to look back. It asks us to look back. And it asks us to have a look at our own lives. And it asks us to see if things are as true and dedicated with us today as they were. And if they are not, what is it that has dulled our affection? And having asked this, God, through this man, wants us to put these things what? And that's the thought that the book of Ezra leaves us. And the next time we see this man, we see him engaged in the same exit, calling the people of the 13 years after, calling the people in the time of Nehemiah calling them again through the word of God back to a dedicated commitment of life and health to the God of Israel. And that is what the word of God does for you and for me tonight. It speaks to you as you sit here tonight. It calls you back. calls you back the same kind of commitment. We shall see more of them as we resume these studies again in the book of Nehemiah. Let us pray. Bless us, Lord, with thy presence. We confess our sins all to thou help us. Help us to confess them our and help us to love the Lord with all our mind, with all our heart, and with all our strength. Give us grace, O God, to put right these areas in our lives where we have gone wrong and where we have gone astray. We thank that thou hast not cast us off. We bless thee that we are in the land of the living. For thou art presenting thyself to us in thy truth as the God and the hope and the Saviour of Israel. And the take for us and for all whom we commit to thee. For Jesus' sake. Amen.